and welcome to Hall Render's HR Insights for Healthcare podcast, covering labor and employment law cases and trends for professionals working within the healthcare industry. I'm Mary-Kate Liffrig. And I am Dana Stutzman. Dana and I are attorneys with Hall Render, the largest healthcare-focused law firm in the country. We both practice employment law and regularly advise healthcare clients on a variety of labor and employment law topics. Please remember, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants only and do not constitute legal advice. Dana and I are here today to talk about healthcare provider non-competes. I'll be asking most of the questions today, and Dana will be the one responding. Um, so before we dive into the substantive portion of our podcast, Dana, can you just tell us a little bit about this part of your practice? Sure. So, and thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, in broad strokes, um, work in private practice for the Hall Render Law Firm um, in healthcare employment. And that consists primarily of two parts. On the front end, there's what I would consider the day-to-day -day consulting stuff, meaning a uh, hospital or physician practice group calls in, they have an issue, maybe it has to deal with a employee with a drug issue or a pregnant nurse or what have you. So we'll talk through options and strategy and consult on the front end. And then on the back end, once the uh, dispute gets into either administrative charge in front of the EEOC or it gets into state court or federal court, that's the second half of my practice where we'll actually get into the trenches, we'll go into court and quote unquote, fight the good fight, so to speak. So um, as it relates to this part and this podcast dealing with uh, non-competes and restrictive covenants, uh, Part of the consulting that I do deals with on the front end, drafting and negotiating uh, restrictive covenants and non-competes with physicians. Nine times out of 10, uh, the, the drafting that I'm doing is at the request of the healthcare employer. So easy example would be, for example, a hospital that wants to bring on a physician. Um, that's kind of the front end contract work that I'll do as it relates to the non-competes. And then um, on the back end, if things, the relationship ends and there is a contractual restrictive covenant or a non-compete in place and the hospital or the physician practice group needs to or wants to try and enforce it, then I'll get involved on the back end as well. Um, sometimes those things can get amicably resolved through back and forth negotiations, but sometimes, unfortunately, uh, a lawsuit actually has to get filed, meaning the employer hospital, physician practice group, they actually have to go on the offensive to try and enforce the terms and conditions of the contract and the, and the non-compete. So that's kind of in a nutshell um, how that, how my practice kind of flows and in particular how the, how the non-compete portion fits into that, into that puzzle. Great. Well, thank you for that context. So you had proposed this topic today to talking about um, healthcare provider non-competes. What what prompted you to want to podcast on this particular topic? Is it just a worthwhile subject or is there an update you want to report on? So the short answer is yes, as to both. In my home state of Indiana, uh, there's actually proposed legislation, both in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, that would make some pretty substantial changes to the legal landscape in terms of uh, physician non-competes and physician restrictive covenants. It's new, it's new to the state, um, so it's, it's still in the works um, because those things that by legislature, if the laws are passed and become law, 
than a healthcare employer's ability to uh, put restrictive covenants and non-competes into healthcare provider contracts is going to be limited. Um, and depending on which which legislation actually becomes law, it could be outright prohibited. So, so that's that's currently kind of in the pipeline, in the works. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up this topic. But then also just taking a step back, it's a worthwhile topic to podcast about because so many of our healthcare clients invest a lot of time, money, training, and effort to try and help build up the build up the client base, build up the physician's practice. And that's that's a protectable interest, which is something we'll talk about in a little bit. So just I think having a a, a good framework, a view from fifty thousand feet would be would be helpful for that. So those are the two reasons why I had asked if we could kind of put this into the into the queue for a podcast topic. Yeah, perfect. It is probably a bit premature to comment on the Indiana legislation at this point. Um, it's very fluid. Um, it's in flux. And I think I think we won't the dust won't settle on that until until the legislature closes out its session in about uh, about a mm, mid-March, I believe. So I thought, again, we could just talk more generally about healthcare non-competes in this podcast. And then once the dust settles from a legislative standpoint in Indiana, we can do a follow-up uh, podcast to talk more specifically about Indiana legislation, what that means, and then also provide some context uh, in terms of what, what some of the other states are doing across the country. Sounds like a plan. So from a substantive perspective, let's start with, um, could you walk us through in broad strokes what a healthcare non-compete dispute even looks like. Sure. And I kind of use this same example uh, when with some of the Indiana legislation that was pending, I uh, had a chance to, to talk with the House committee that was that was listening and reviewing the, the proposed legislation. And the example um, short story that I gave is, 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 is this one here. So you have typically a dispute looks like this. The Employment agreement is entered into between the employer, for example, a physician practice group or a hospital, and the employee, typically it's the physician, right? That contract that the parties agree to contains, you know, salary information, benefit information, start date, but also frequently will, con will contain um, non-compete provisions. More generically, I'll, I'll sometimes use them interchangeably when I say non-compete. Um, and restrictive covenant provisions. They're similar, but not exactly the same. So for purposes of the podcast, I'll use them kind of back and forth in exchange in, interchangeably. But non-compete specifically talks to uh, a restriction on the ability to compete. Um, they're also often go hand in hand with that non-solicitation provisions, meaning you physician cannot solicit our patients or our clients after you leave. And also, you cannot solicit our employees after you leave. So, so those are additional restrictive covenants that would be kind of tucked into an overall restrictive covenant provision of a contract. And then there's also confidentiality provisions in there as well that say you're not going to take our, our confidential patient information, our addresses, that kind of stuff. So those, those things often will get incorporated into a contract. Employer, employee. Everybody's aware that the that the restrictions are in the contract, right? It's not like they're printed off in invisible ink or anything like that. Contract gets signed. 
physician will then work for some period of time, maybe it's a matter of months, maybe it's a matter of years or multiples of years. In that time frame, the physician will accept the salary that's promised, the benefits that's promised, CME dollars, additional training, perhaps there's tuition uh, assistance or loan forgiveness type of benefits that are provided. So the physician receives those benefits and then for whatever reason will decide to quit the practice at that particular employer and move on. Again, in this example I'm talking about, what happens at that point is that the physician will open up shop within the restricted area or the physician will go to work for a competitor, a competing hospital, a competing physician practice group within the restricted area. And sometimes the physician will go so far as to solicit former colleagues and patients to try and jump ship and come over to wherever the, uh, the, the physician ultimately lands. At that point, the employer, again, hospital, physician practice group, cry foul because the physician is in breach and is violating the terms of the contract and is infringing on what the courts will call the employer's goodwill, right? And we'll talk about that in a minute. And so sometimes when that happens, the, the contract has a buyout clause that says, well, physician, if you want to, quote unquote, buy your way out of this non-compete clause, then you have to pay us, the employer, a certain amount of money, right? In those instances, if it turns into a lawsuit, it's because the physician is uh, arguably in violation of the restrictions in the contract and is also refusing to pay the buyout clause, right? So that's kind of in a in a in a nutshell what a typical physician non-compete dispute and lawsuit looks like. So in that situation, what what would a court do, right? There's a, an allegation of a breach of a contract. What are courts looking at and what are they doing in this situation? Sure, and that's a good question. And what I'll say is in the absence of legislation, meaning if, if you happen to be in a state like currently Indiana is, and there are lots of other states across the country that are like Indiana, meaning there is no legislation, there are no laws on the books that talk about what is okay and what's not okay to include in a, in a physician non-compete or a physician restrictive covenant. In the absence of legislation, there are, in, in my experience and in my view, like five main points, five main takeaways that kind of illustrate how the courts have handled a situation like the one that I just kind of spelled out for you, right? So point number one, restrictive covenants in the employment context, meaning it's a it's a it's a contractual arrangement between employer and employee as opposed to business to business. Um, but in the employment context, restrictive covenants are viewed as restraints of trade and they're disfavored under the law because they're they're viewed as restraints of trade. So right out of the gates, the employer has uh, a pretty heavy lift, uh, kind of a high hurdle to clear because the default view by the courts is we don't like these restrictive covenants. Um, we're going to, we the courts are going to narrowly construe the terms and conditions of, of the restrictive covenant agreement. Um, and so if it's overbroad, it's gonna be a problem and it's gonna get shot down, right? So that's point number one, meaning disfavored under the law, courts narrowly construe. The second point is that when when dealing with these disputes, courts have adopted a reasonableness standard. 
and they will look at these cases, these physician restrictive covenants and physician non-compete cases on a case-by-case -case basis. So usually what the courts look at is in order for a restrictive covenant to be reasonable and enforceable, the time limitations have to be reasonable, the geographic limitations have to be reasonable, and the activity restrictions have to be reasonable, and they have to be narrowly tailored to the facts of the situation. And so again, when I talk about time limitations, simply put, I mean, how long is the restriction in place? Is it one year, two years, 10 years? Uh, geographic limitations, oftentimes it's, the scenario would be uh, physician, you cannot provide competing services within a geographic radius of 10 miles or 15 miles from where you practice for us, right? So that's a geographic restriction. An activity restriction, as the name implies, restricts the physician's activities. What type of services is the physician restricted or prohibited from providing? Gotcha. And so just to put this in practice, can you give me an example of an unreasonable or an overbroad non-compete? Sure. And again, in, in, in states, and in the, the vast majority of states are like Indiana, and there, there are no legislative controls in place. And so it's just a function of case law, right? And so an easy example, one that comes to mind is there was a case several years back where it was a physician practice group. They employed an eye doctor to provide, uh, as one might expect, eye doctor type services. Um, but the, the activity restriction in the doctor's restrictive covenant prohibited him post-employment from providing medical services of any kind or character. And so in that instance, the court said, hmm, that's unreasonable, unenforceable, because it's it's overly broad. The activity restrictions that the that the employer was trying to enforce were too broad because the eye doctor did not provide garden variety uh, healthcare services or medical services for the employer. All that the eye doctor provided was eye doctor services. So in that instance, court struck it down and said, it's too, it's too broad, it exceeds the protectable interest that the employer has, therefore we're not gonna force this, right? So that's one example of an overbroad non-compete. Other examples in terms of time limitations, broad strokes, one year, most likely okay. 18 months, most likely okay. Two years, probably okay. You get out above and beyond that and you start to kind of get into some, uh, to more of a murky area of the law, right? So if there was one that said for 20 years, you can't do the type of stuff that you're doing for us. Well, I have a pretty high degree of confidence that that would be struck down in terms of a time limitation as being overbroad, right? And the same thing from a geographic limitation um, in the in the physician context, you know, if you have a geographic restriction that says you well, you won't practice anywhere in the entire continent of North America, well, most courts I think would find that to be an unreasonable restriction, especially in the instance where the employer hospital physician practice group only has a market of you know Central Indiana or um, Southern Michigan or something like that. So does that does that help? Does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Thank you. And I interrupted. I think you were listing out of your five main points. Maybe you were on, on point three. Three. That's right. That's right. Thank you. So point three is, again, we're just talking about kind of the, the main the main points that, that kind of uh, come out of these court decisions, right? So point three is that 
courts have recognized that um, hospitals, employers, physician practice groups do have legitimate business and quote unquote, uh, quote unquote, goodwill interests worthy of contractual protections afforded by these physician restrictive covenants and non-competes. For context, you know, is it these is it these legitimate business and goodwill interests that are driving the uh, the reasonable restrictions, like the time limitations and the geographic limitations? Right? Is that what essentially establishes those restrictions? Yeah, absolutely. Right, and so that's what a court will look at: is what kind of market share does the employer have? Um, what services uh, is the physician employed to provide? And then as a result of that, what's what's a reasonable what's a reasonable geographic scope uh, that's worthy of protection. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so there is this there's this at its core, uh, an underlying tension between the employer and the physician employee on the key question of, well, whose practice is it anyway? Right. And so uh, what the doctors will say is that it's their practice, it's their patients, they're the ones that did the training, they went to medical school, they did the residency, they did the fellowship, they put in all the hard work, study, time, and effort, and those are their patients that they treat, therefore it's their practice. That is in tension and some conflict with the position that um, the healthcare employers take, because they say, well, not so fast. It's, if, if I'm the hospital or the physician practice group, it's our practice. It's our patient base as well. After all, we bought the land. Uh, we bought the bricks. We built the, we built the, we built the facilities. We bought the fancy laser machines. We provide the staffing. We provide the tools. We invested in your training. We invested in your advertising, the billboards, uh, your CME. We paid off your loans. Those are all things that we did to help build up the practice. And but for our investment in you as a provider, you wouldn't have a practice uh, to, to to speak of, so to speak. And again, very simplified examples of, of what I'm talking about. But but at its core, that's kind of where this tension is. Right. And so the docs say my practice, my patients, healthcare employers say it's our practice. It's our patients because we're the ones that have that are investing the money in the infrastructure to, to build this up. Interesting. So so what have courts said on that question? For the most part, the courts and the judges have agreed with the employers, meaning the hospitals and the physician practice groups, arguments on that front. And what I mean by that is, is um, the courts have said that, yeah, when you have a hospital that invests money in advertising, in training, uh, in, in, in building facilities so that the physician has a place to, to practice, those investments are, in fact, worthy of protection. That is the goodwill, right? Those, those patient lists, the electronic medical records, the, the data, those are all worthy of protection. And so as long as the restrictive covenant is, is narrowly tailored to, to protect those goodwill interests, then the courts will uphold it, right? Got so it. I think that was um, that was point three, talking about legitimate business interests that the employers can protect by way of these restrictive covenants. 
The fourth point out of five, the fourth point is that courts have also recognized that money is not always going to be the thing that cures all evils, meaning money is not always going to be an adequate remedy in a physician non-compete dispute. And when the money isn't enough to make the employer quote unquote whole, then the courts will issue the injunction, right? And all the all that an injunction is is a court basically it's a it's a full stop order. Court says in an order to the practitioner physician, um, thou shalt not practice uh, for within so many miles of the hospital and for so many months, right? So that's what that's what an injunction basically means. Can you give us an example of when money wouldn't be enough to to make someone whole? Uh, sure. Yeah, and it's this is a this is a key point, especially if 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 you are representing if if you are you know an administrator at a hospital or administrator of this practice group, this is the key point, and this is a subtle one because a lot of times, especially an example where an employment contract has a buyout clause, that you know physician, if you pay X number of dollars, we will let you out of this contract or we will let you out of this employment. Uh, uh, the restrictive covenant. The the tough spot that the employer finds itself in is in the instance where there's a buyout, physician leaves practice and let's hypothetically say opens up shop right across the street. Uh, employer sends a letter that says you're in violation, you need to stop. And also you have a buyout and you need to, you need to pay us. Well, in those situations, a lot of times the doctor continues to operate across the street and is unwilling to pay the money. So employer is left with really no recourse other than to go into court and try and get an injunction to, to shut down the, the physician's practice. At that point, a lot of times what the physician's attorney will do is tell the judge, judge, this, uh, this contract has a buyout provision in it. Therefore, um, money will, will, will make this situation, um, go away. Therefore, judge, you shouldn't issue the injunction because money will solve this problem. Because just to back up real quick, uh, courts will not issue an injunction if if uh, if a monetary remedy will suffice. Okay. So in that situation, what the what the employer has to do is say, well, your honor, <laughs> we tried to get the money, but the money has yet to be paid, which is the whole reason why we're here in the first place. Right. So that's point number one. Physician is still competing and physician also hasn't paid the money. But the other reason why, like I said, um, money is not always going to cure all evils is because in that scenario that I just described, right, where you have a hospital, let's say it's the only hospital within the within a geographic region and the physician leaves and goes across the street, you now have another player in the marketplace who otherwise should not be there. And so, yes, given enough time, you know, the hospital would be able to show how many patients went over to the competing physician. They could show how many employees left the hospital to go over to work with the competing physician, right? So, yes, there you could quantify damages. But the impossible task is to determine how much loss of potential new revenue potential new patients were diverted over to this physician's competing practice. That's the part where it's it's impossible to quantify, right? Because again, 
new business means or potential new business means that well if i'm the hospital they weren't they weren't our patients yet uh we were hoping because we're doing our advertising in our geographic area we're hoping that they're going to come over uh, and, and and treat with us and utilize our services um, but now court because we have this unauthorized provider this unauthorized player in the marketplace we have no idea of how much how much um uh, how many patients and how many how many clients are being diverted over to that to that competing practice for that reason because we can't quantify that we have no way to determine how much money potentially we're losing that's why court we need you to issue the injunction to shut down that practice so that the physician honors the terms of the restrictive covenant right so that's that's kind of a long the long-winded answer of of when the money isn't the isn't going to be an adequate make whole remedy so uh we kind of walk through four of the main takeaways which just leaves the last and final point and that has to deal with kind of the the public policy considerations uh that go into physician non-competes physician restrictive covenants the battlegrounds here basically look like this physicians for probably decades have attacked uh, physician non-competes and restrictive covenants on public policy grounds, meaning they've taken the position that when it comes to physicians, non-competes and restrictive covenants are unique and should be found per se, meaning on their face, unlawful because it's not just dealing with employer and employee interaction, as, as might be the case with, I don't know, um, a salesperson, right? But when it comes to physician and hospital or physician and healthcare employer, um, the restrictive covenant interferes, so the argument goes, with the physician-patient relationship because it could potentially, arguably, disrupt continuity of care. Um, if physician leaves from one location and wants to go to a competitor, what the physicians have said is it's it's not good for policy because that's going to restrict the patient's ability to continue, continue treatment with the physician they're choosing, right? So that's that's what the physicians have argued. Um, I, I have actually heard a number of times, in fact, most recently at this uh, at one of the committee hearings over in the Indiana legislature, one of the doctors kind of referred to the fact that he was under a uh, restrictive covenant. He referred to himself as an indentured, indentured servant. Um, so... You know, I appreciate the the advocacy there, um, but I, I do think that that one is a bit of a stretch, right? I mean, especially because you know providers do great work, physicians do great work, and they are often well compensated. And so, you know, indentured servant who is earning you know upwards of I don't know, depending on the specialty, what three hundred, four hundred, half million dollars a year. I don't know that 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 really that argument plays so well. But in any event. That's what the physicians have argued, is that it it impacts in a negative way the physician-patient relationship. Most courts across the country, when when faced with that argument, they do find you know there's there is some uh, there is some viability to it, but at the end of the day, the courts typically strike it down. Which in fact, again, in Indiana, in the Indiana Supreme Court, has done just that. They've rejected that public policy argument that the physicians put forward twice before. The first time was back in 19, early 1980s, and the second time was more recently in 2008. And the reason why 
the reason why the uh, courts, for example, the Indiana Supreme Court, struck down this public policy argument that the physicians are arguing and putting forward is, is basically twofold. First, they, the courts said that the public's general interest in medical services is subservient to the public interest in the freedom of individuals to contract. Translated, that means there is a more compelling policy argument that society functions best when it can rely on legally enforceable contractual agreements, right? So if you sign the contract, then you're contractually obligated to honor its terms. And if you didn't like the terms of the non-compete or the restrictive covenant, then you should have either A, negotiated a different deal or B, not signed the agreement in the first place, right? So again, that's, that's just kind of a watered down, simplified version of, of what, what the courts have done in terms of why they've thus far not bought into the, um, the public policy argument, right? So like I said, they, the courts have basically held freedom of contract at a higher level from a policy standpoint than, than the physician-patient relationship argument that the physicians are putting forward. And then the second piece, and this is, again, kind of practically speaking, wraps this wraps up this conversation, wraps up this podcast for now. Um, what the courts have said is, hey, when it comes to public policy arguments in terms of what the physicians are arguing and when we have to balance, OK, contract the um, freedom of contract versus the, the arguments the physicians are making, those balancing decisions uh, when it comes to public policy are better left to the legislature, right? So if, if the legislature wants to make some laws along public policy lines, then the legislature is free and clear to do so. Indiana, like I said, is in the process of doing just that. Other states, I have to double check the data on this. I, I have some outdated data from, from one of the cases that I, that I researched before this podcast, but back at the time around 2008, there were only three states, only three out of 50, only three states that had, uh, I think, physician restrictive covenant laws in the books. My sense uh, is that since that time frame, 2008, that number has increased, and I, I feel very strongly that that, that number um, is is most likely going to keep increasing, meaning there are going to be more and more states that will be passing legislation to restrict the employer's ability uh, to implement uh, restrictive covenants when it comes to physicians and healthcare providers. Great. Well, this has been a really helpful framework and, and very helpful information. Um, we started this conversation talking a little bit about this proposed legislation in Indiana in particular, and then we've just looped around to it again. Just for our listeners in Indiana, can you give us a sense from a timing perspective of what we should expect, um, since you've mentioned that this is an issue that the legislature is currently considering? Yeah, and so don't 100% quote me on this, but I do know that in Indiana, it's, uh, I think, what they call the short session this year, which means I think that the legislature is going to be wrapping up its legislative duties and legislative stuff uh, around mid-March. Um, so whatever, whatever legislation, you know, makes its way into, into becoming a law, um, would then become effective July 1 of 2020. So short answer is 
we'll have we'll have a lot more clarity in terms of how things are going to shake out in Indiana um, by mid-March. And so I think the plan is to is just to do a follow-up podcast to talk more specifically about the Indiana changes. Um, and then also to try and kind of wrap in and tie in some additional commentary about what we're seeing in other states across the country, because obviously we recognize that our client base for in terms of hall render is more than just Indiana, right? So uh, by mid-March, we should have a better better uh, sense of the lay of the land, and we'll, we'll be able to talk about that. And then whatever happens, if, it, if there is going to be something that happens and becomes law, it, beca it takes effect on July 1 of 2020. So we'll have a couple months to, to get out in front of it, to talk about it, plan it. Um, and then we'll also figure out, again, depending on what, what kind of legislation passes, is, is the legislation effective July 1 of 2020 on a going forward basis? Does it affect all contracts regardless of when they were entered into? So those are some of the um, those are some of the details that uh, that we're that we're continuing to monitor. All right. Well, Dana, thank you for your time today. And as a reminder to our listeners, uh, for more healthcare employment law content, please visit our website at hallrender.com and please subscribe to our podcast. And if you'd like to be added to our monthly newsletter, feel free to send me an email at m l i f f r i g at hallrender.com or contact your regular hall render attorney. <laughs>